Welcome to our 48th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We're your host, I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. Russell, how's everything going? It's going pretty good. Keeping busy as always. Well, our last episode, we said that we wanted to talk about uh, the Challenger A30. That's going to be our first point. And our second point, we are going to talk about what we talked about the last episode is Michael Whitman, the German tank ace. So I guess we'll just jump right in. I don't think we have any new no. announcements or no. anything like that. Shout outs or announcements yet. Any questions, comments, any ideas for any future episodes, let us know. You can get a hold of us on Facebook and through email. Now, you were telling me the other day that you said you could listen to our podcast on your Alexa. Yeah, you can, you can check out, uh, you can just say, hey, Alexa. Play the tank, Two Tankers and a Cat podcast on TuneIn. That's the main way. And I think I've actually accessed it through Apple Podcasts through Alexa before, somehow. Now, I've got it set up on my Google Home, where I can go, hey, Google, and it'll play. And usually when the new episode comes out, uh-huh. I don't, that's how I listen now to it. Now you listen to it, yeah. You know, I listen to it, listen to mine through, usually when I'm at work, I can listen to it on the Echo Auto. I've got Alexa in my car. and. Well, you know, I hate to say it, uh, we're coming up, going to be doing our 50th anniversary yeah. episode. Yeah. So that's huge. What, two years we've been doing I this? I know. It's been crazy. <laughs> we'll talk more on our 50th episode. Our 50th episode, we're going to sit down and just talk about all sorts of tanks. Oh, and yeah. Places we've been and just maybe where we're going in the future with the show. Yeah. Yeah, believe it or not, folks, the ch- the show's getting bigger and bigger every oh, time. It is. It, it just continues to grow. I mean, it has not disappointed at all in my book. It, you know, people are like, well, you don't have 40 million people like uh, Kim Kardashian. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's because our podcast is for a specific niche. Yes. Uh, a, yeah. a, a, a small group. Yeah. Of- and that's why we decided on this to be honest with you i mean there really wasn't anything out there talking about tanks or tank history in podcasting and that's i think that's kind of why we decided to go with this and it's just so amazing to us that there's been so many copycats that have come out uh, you know during this two years trying to uh, do what we did i know i know world of tanks tried to um some others tried to uh it's a lot more work. Oh, it is. And, you know, people are like, oh, we're just going to sit down and talk about it. <laughs> uh, not, it's usually not quite that easy. Yeah. And we're not trying to discourage anybody. You know, yeah. uh, I think Francis Pullman just started one, and I'm I'm 100% behind it. I'm oh, like, yeah. absolutely. Heck yeah. Yeah. But, you know, for us to be the pioneers of mm, something, yeah, that's amazing. It is. It is. That's amazing. The tank... Cruiser Challenger A30 was a British tank of World War II. It mounted the QF 17-pounder anti-tank gun on a chassis derived from the Cromwell tank to add additional anti-tank firepower to the cruiser tank units. The design 
compromises made in fitting the large gun onto the Cromwell chassis resulted in a tank with a very powerful weapon, but reduced armor. The 17-pounder on the Sherman Firefly version of the U.S. supplied uh, Sherman was easier to produce, and you know, with the delays in production, only 200 Challengers were built. The Challenger was able to keep up with the fast Cromwell tank and was used with them. You know, that makes total sense. Cromwell was a fast tank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Russ, give us some history about the A-30. The driving force in the development of the Challenger was William Arthur Robotham. Roy Robotham had been a Rolls-Royce executive in the car division who, with no work to do, had led a team to develop a tank power plant from the Rolls-Royce Merlin aircraft engine. The Rolls-Royce Meteor gave the British a powerful, reliable engine, which was used in the A-27M cruiser Mark 8 Cromwell tank. Robotham's contribution gained him a place in the Ministry of Supply and on the tank board, despite his lack of experience in tank design. The general staff brought forward specification A-29, for a 45-ton, 17-pounder armed cruiser tank based on needs identified in the African Desert Campaign. British tanks were generally underarmed compared to German vehicles. The design weight of this vehicle was subsequently seen as excessive, and the specification was passed over in favor of the alternate specification, A30, which was 10 long tons or 10 tons lighter. In 1942, an order for the development of an A30-based tank was placed with Birmingham Railway Carriage and Wagon Company, expecting it to be based on the Cromwell components also being manufactured by the Birmingham Railway Carriage and Wagon Company. The turret and gun mounting were in the hands of Stothert and Pitt. Birmingham Carriage had to modify the Cromwell hull to take a bigger turret. We've talked about this a couple of times, but I want to bring up this point. Here is a guy that was a Rolls-Royce luxury car designer. He's a patriot. He's older. He wants to help. He wants to help. So he wants to do the best that he can. And he's like, I've got a design team that we're really not doing anything. Let's try and design a tank. But again, using separate companies, not bringing in people from the field. You know, this guy had no experience in combat with tanks. You know, he just had a bunch of guys designing luxury cars and they're like, okay, we can help with this. And he gets on the board, starts designing, and they use two separate companies to manufacture like the turret and the chassis. And we talked last episode that the turret would, wouldn't fit on the chassis and stuff like that. You know, if you're going to build a tank and have it be effective, you have to have all people on the same page. You can't this guy does this, this guy does that, and they yeah. don't talk to each other. It's just a mess. Oh, you know what? Uh, I got a message that said, hey, you know, you didn't give us a joke last time. And I'm like, okay, we forgot the joke. So uh, let me go ahead and get this out of the way so everybody can, you know, say, oh. Hey, Russ, what's the first thing a monster eats after having his teeth checked? I don't know, Charlie. The dentist. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Holy yeah. cow. 
All right. Yeah. That was that, that was my dad joke. That's the joke. Yep. You know what, Russell? Save me. Just tell me about this tank. <laughs> the first prototype was ready in August 1942, only seven months after development had commenced, but proved to be very flawed. An improved second prototype was presented in January 1943, but was still considered unacceptable. A committee met to determine whether a requirement for a 17-pounder tank existed. The Challenger had been developed in anticipation of more heavily armored Axis tanks following the trend in Nazi German tank design. At roughly the same time, the Tiger I entered service with the German Army, placing an immediate need for a 17-pounder armed tank in response. When the second prototype was tested at Lulworth, it was found that although it would be effective at long range against the current best gun tank in German service, which was the Panzer IV Special with the long 75mm gun, at shorter ranges it would be at a disadvantage due to its slow firing rate and thin armor. The design received additional emphasis when, in May 1943, it was found in that the Cromwell could not carry its intended armament. Vickers had been developing a 75mm L50 caliber high velocity tank gun. It was realized late in the design process that the Cromwell's turret ring was too small for this gun. The Challenger would be the only British cruiser tank to mount a weapon that could tackle heavier German armor until the arrival of the A-34 Comet. Therefore, already in February 1943, an order was made of 200 vehicles. We really need to do an episode on the A-34 Comet. I I hate that tank. I I hate it. It's one of my most hated tanks. Uh, You know, if I ever did a top 10 worst tanks, it it would be up there. The only one, people say, well, you know, you're making an uninformed decision. Well, me and Russ went to Fort Benning and we actually hung out with their Comet. Remember, we asked if they were going to restore it. He said, well, we really can't because it was under the sea and it got all seawater and rusted. It's basically just being held together by rust. (laughs) But it it looks cool. And we're so grateful that we got to see it. But uh, And in the world of tanks game, there's tons of people that love the Comet. I hate it. I hate the tank. And I guess we're going to have to do an episode on it on why I hate this tank so much. Yeah. So it'll be worthy about talking about. Have we done an episode on the Panzer IV, though? I know we've done the Panzer III, and we've done the Tiger. We we need to do a Tiger II yeah, episode. Yeah, You know what? Let's do a Tiger II episode yeah, soon. Yeah, we will. You know, we're getting up on 50 episodes. I, I can't keep track of them. I, I know. I thought I'd go back and and look, to be honest with you. If we haven't done a Panzer, <laughs> Panzer IV, we're going to do one. Yeah. But I think we have. But, uh, it, you know, that was the workhorse, you know, basically yeah. everybody calls the workhorse of the German army back then. All right, Russ, I'm sorry, go ahead. British tank production was constrained by limited resources and insufficient numbers could be made. This was compensated by American production. In the lead up to D-Day, Sherman tanks were fitted with the 17-pounder, creating the interim 17-pounder Sherman Firefly. Converting Sherman tanks was simpler than producing Challengers, so it was decided in November 1943 to terminate the A-30 production run after the 200 vehicles had been built, allowing the BRC and W to concentrate on the Cromwell. Again, I want to get back. They're like, no, we don't want to use the Firefly. And we talked to, talked about this in the Firefly episode. You've got all these tanks. 
and all you got to do is do some conversion. I, I even know that some of the M4s that were in service were actually pulled out and re-equipped with these to make them into fireflies. The demand was so great that there were, what, almost 2,200 of these fireflies made. Yeah. You do what you can with what you got. You know, one of the downfalls we've talked about in German tanks is they had the Panzer IV. They had the Panzer III. They could have upgraded some of those and, and done that. But they kept, you know, doing amazing design work and little details and stuff like they that. kept reinventing the wheel, really. Uh, yeah. I mean. You know, and some of their stuff is still used today. Yeah. You know, we talk about infrared and stuff like that and the Panther and how advanced that was for the time. But again, here's the United States dumping out uh, tens of thousands of these Shermans and the Soviets dumping tens of thousands of T-34s. They didn't ask for a new tank. They put a new turret on the T-34 and gave the 85. And that that is in my top 10 favorite tanks. The T-34 is just one of my favorites. But you know what? One thing that always made me question the Americans knew that the British wanted the Firefly, okay? And we're selling it to them. And we've talked about this before. Why not manufacture that 17-pounder and send them over? The Soviets were begging for our tanks. We were sending Lees and Stewarts and Shermans. Why didn't we manufacture the T-34-85? You know, people say, well, uh, you know, could American production handle it <laughs> back then? Absolutely. Yeah, they could have. We could have made a T-34-85 that would last way longer using our engines, our equipment, our design, and be a lot better and last more than, you know, what they say, you know, 136 hours yeah. or 600 hours, whatever it was. But again, that was a total changing of the times. Yeah, it was. At the same time, the A-40 Challenger Stage 2 project was canceled, which had envisioned a 36-ton type with heavier armor. Future design priority was concentrated on the A-34 Comet, which eventually replaced the Cromwell, Firefly, and Challenger. Challenger production started March 1944. That year, 145 vehicles were delivered with another 52 in 1945. Production was in two batches. A first run of 40 vehicles had a 40 millimeter gun mantlet with the second batch that was replaced by a 102 millimeter mantlet. From the 100th vehicle onwards, a pleak 25 millimeter armored plates were fitted on the turret that had already been applied to existing vehicles by field units. Uh, see, there, there's another example. They get these tanks out there and they're like, oh, okay, we're going to have to weld some armor on this. We're going to have to fix it in the field. Eventually, the engineers here, listen, we need this in the field, and you guys are giving us these. All right, I'm getting angry. (laughs) I think what really opened my eyes to how many versions of tanks after the first run or two was probably Sherman Rowe at Fort Benning on how many different variants of the Shermans there are. I mean, it's incredible on how many times they've had to upgrade them to make them better. Yeah. Instead of building a brand new tank every time they upgraded it to. If you uh, 
look through our old episodes on our YouTube channel, we actually did a video of uh, the Sherman Tank Row. Yeah. And all the changes. Yeah. And we talked about some of the gun changes and the armor changes. And We'll have to put that back on Facebook or... Yeah, yeah. Back towards the top. Again. I think yeah. I think that it's in our history on our YouTube. You can dig in there and find yeah. it. But get, getting back, the tank was rendered obsolete when the Vickers uh, HV 75 millimeter gun was developed to become the 77 millimeter HV uh, to arm the Comet tank. The 77 millimeter HV used the same projectiles as the 17 pounder with a reduced propellant charge. The 17-pounder gun was reintroduced briefly on earlier uh, marks of the Comet's successor, the Centurion tank. There's a perfect example. You know, the 17-pounder was a great gun for the British, or the UK. Uh, Anyway, let's talk about the controversy on the A-30. Upon Robotham's appointment as chief engineer to the Department of Tank Design, A lack of progress on an A-29 17-pounder armed tank could not adequately be explained. Robotham's memoirs indicate a lack of awareness that any such requirement existed within the department, and military users were still unsure whether the tank was required at the point when the rushed A-30 design had been completed and prototype vehicles run. The Challenger was then rushed into production alongside existing production runs of Cromwell, Limiting the number of tanks that could be produced. See, another perfect example. He didn't know. Nobody told him. He's like, no, you're bringing up these questions. I don't know what you're talking about. Nobody ever came to me and said, ooh, this is probably a bad idea. And the other key word, rushed into production. The T-34s, one of my favorite tanks, you can read they were rushed into production. Exactly. You know, they had... They have stories where the tank was coming straight off the assembly line and going out into the battle. And and if you're going to rush something of that design, you're going to have tons of problems. Oh, yeah. The dubious reliability of earlier British tank designs, along with limited manufacturing capacity, led to a joint mission to the U.S. to explore tank options and share design experiences learned from action. Consequently, British and other Commonwealth forces introduced a much larger contingent of U.S.-made vehicles, each using dual-purpose 75mm guns with reduced anti-armor capabilities. The U.S. doctrine placed artillery as the primary anti-tank weapon, while tanks used the dual-purpose gun to fire high-explosive shells at unarmored targets. A lot of people will fight, and I've done this, screamed, they should have put the 76 on there, they should have put the 76 on there i've made complaints about this but our doctrine and i have to kind of agree when they knew there was a tank column or there were tanks in uh, the woods you stopped at no point did they say charge in there and kill those tanks like you know stalin would with the t-34 send send our tanks in there to get them no our doctrine was all right here's what we're going to do you're going to radio it in with the coordinates and we're going to fire all our artillery in there and we're going to blow them straight up. If we have aircraft available, we're going to drop bombs and just tear them up. That's all good doctrine. I, I have no compo- you know, no problem with that. What I'm saying, though, is 
when you're out in the field and you're advancing forward, you run into that. And your tanks should be able to fight other tanks. Yeah. You're not always going to pop out. We did the episode on the Hellcat where they were, they're in Hellcat tank destroyers and not supposed to be on the front line. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they're driving down and all of a sudden 30 feet from them, they run into a bunch of Panthers. The fog of war, you're going to run straight into it. So the U.S. can sit down there and intelligently look at you and say, listen, I, I don't want our tanks fighting this. Yeah. It's for our airplanes, our tank busting airplanes and our artillery. They shouldn't be anywhere close to fighting. Our tanks are supposed to find machine gun nest, roll up there, and use high explosive to take them out so they don't kill our troops. We're worried about our guys. We don't want our tankers killed in tank battles. We can blow them up from a mile away. Don't go after them. Our machine gun nest, you tell the infantry guys, don't charge it. Wait for a tank to come up there and help you. That's not how war works. Exactly, yeah. I'm sorry, Russ, go ahead. Cromwell's carrying the six-pounder had been delayed in design and the move to cancel Challenger while switching Cromwell to the dual-purpose 75-millimeter gun with a corresponding drop in anti-armor performance left British and other Commonwealth forces without a main force tank weapon capable of taking on the equivalent generation of Axis tanks. The lack of firepower was keenly felt by tank crews fighting heavier armed and sometimes more heavily armored Axis tanks. The Firefly was used as a stopgap, which was only resolved much later with the A-34 Comet. While the Comet improved significantly upon Cromwell and Challenger designs, its design and production followed that of the Cromwell and was delayed much longer than an equivalent production and evolution of the Challenger. I don't think I will understand the UK's tank design and such during World War II. I mean, now the UK has great tanks. And, and I, I don't want to make our UK listeners feel bad. Those were patriots, and they were working as hard as they could to get stuff out. So I can sit here now in the comfort of you know the studio with air conditioning and, and sitting back and relaxing. London was being bombed. Yeah. I, I, I at no point wanted to say that sometimes I get a little armchair quarterback stuff going on. You look at the British tanks now. Good God. They're always in the top 10 best tanks in the world. Yeah. You know, their tank design is amazing now. Yeah. And a lot of it back then too may have been the time constraints. I mean, they knew that they had to hurry to get this stuff designed and produced. And, and you just can't do that. And I mean, like we've seen, with so many different tanks being designed and, and trying to do that, you just can't. You can't do yeah. it. Here, the United States is, and I'm not saying the United States was better than any other country. I'm not saying that. But we weren't having New York bombed yeah. every single day. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, and London is getting bombed. People, civilians are dying. Yeah. yeah. You know, people. We also had the luxury of how many car and train companies actually were producing the Sherman uh, Ford uh, exactly. Chrysler. Yeah. I mean, and, the, and there's, the, they had a production oh, wow. plant in uh, Canada. So, so we had a lot of, a lot more resources, I guess, at our disposal. And, and, you know, we had all the 
ores and metals and stuff producing and, and coming out. And, you know, at no point we should ever kind of judge these guys. Yeah. And if I've ever offended anybody from the UK with some of my stuff, you know, basically saying, oh, you know, World War II tanks from the UK sucked. I shouldn't say that because if New York and Detroit and Chicago had been being bombed. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't, I think we'd be in the same yeah, spot. We probably would have been. You know, we'd have guys from Royal Royce, you know, or, or our luxury car makers out there doing the best that they could. Yeah. You know, and doing it fast. That's one way that I can apologize. Well, Russell, uh, give us some stats on this thing. Yeah, like we talked about, the designer was the Birmingham Carriage and Wagon Company. They built 200 of them. Specifications including the mass at 31.5 long tons or 32 tons. The length of the tank was 26 foot 4 inches or 8.03 meters. The width was 9 foot 6.5 inches or 2.91 meters. And the height was 9 foot 1.25 inches or 2.77 meters high. It had a crew of five, which included the commander, the gunner, the loader, the co-loader, and the driver. The armor was anywhere between 20 and 102 millimeters thick, or 0.79 inches to 4.20 inches thick. The main armament was an ordnance QF 17-pounder, 76.2 millimeter, and they carried about 42 rounds. The secondary armament was a 30-caliber Browning machine gun. The engine, like we talked about earlier, was the Rolls-Royce Meteor V12 petrol engine, cranked out about 600 horsepower, or 450 kilowatts. The power-to-weight ratio was 18.8 horsepower per ton, or 14 kilowatts per ton. The suspension used the Christie suspension uh, with six road wheels. The operational range was 105 miles, or 169 kilometers. And the maximum speed was 32 miles per hour or 51 kilometers per hour. Well, I look at the height and I think uh, that would be a good target, you know. <laughs> but, you know, let's be honest. You know, the if you want a good target, it'd be the Iron Cathedral, the M3 Lee. One of my favorite tanks. Yeah, I know. I, know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can defend the, t- the M3 Lee, and I've had people just say, I will debate you on this. And I'm like, <laughs> bring it on. I will tell you how great the Lee was. Oh, I know. And, you know, but even going back, the Grant yeah. was a variation of the Lee. Yeah. And mm-hmm. another perfect example that the UK said, listen, we, we love the frame, we love everything about it, but we have to have this turret. Yeah, yeah. You know, you guys have put way typical Americans, we've got to put machine guns all over everything. We really need a, oh, a good tank turret. Tell us about the service history. No provision was made for deep waiting before the design went into production. As a result, the A-30 could not be landed in the initial phase of the Allied invasion of Normandy. Challenger crews had to wait until July 1944 when Mulberry Harbors were operational and ports had been captured. (laughs) Well, no wonder Montgomery wanted wanted those Sherman Fireflies. A fun thing about M4s that they could actually 
float. I know. They had propellers. They had the little boat thing. I think Craig Moore's uncle or something actually drove an M4 oh, with wow. the little uh, canvas bag that turned it into oh, a boat. Oh, man. Here they're cutting through the water, yeah. landing, getting into the fight. And this tank is like, okay, when you guys clear out a port <laughs> and we, we, we'll, we'll unload it. I, I, I know. I, you know, I'm complaining, but, I know. you know, like I said. The Challenger and Firefly, equipped with 17-pounder, were added to tank squadrons to deal with opposing heavy tanks, and many Challengers were issued to reconnaissance units using Cromwells. It was initially used by the Guards Armored Division and the 11th Armored Division, with about 16 vehicles in each unit. The latter division phased the type out from February 1945 onwards, while it was being introduced to the Cromwell units of the 7th Armored Division. The tank was unpopular at first, with crews complaining about the lack of armor, the high silhouette, and the tracks being thrown. The track problem was caused by the smaller idler wheels compared to the Cromwell. These were in August replaced by idlers with a standard diameter. Troops used to the low profile of the Crusader and Cromwell found that the height a serious problem, although it was still shorter than the comparable Sherman Firefly. If there's one thing we all learned... Don't build your tanks high. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, that, you look at tanks like the Lee, that was an easy bazooka target. Oh, it was, yeah. A lot of space there to target on. Confidence in the vehicle grew, and it became preferred over the Firefly, being lower, faster, and more maneuverable. But the early bad reputation persisted with others. Allied forces were issued with the Challenger, the first Polish armored division, receiving several in mid-1945, and the 1st Czechoslovak Armored Brigade used it during the Siege of Dunkirk in late 1944. After the war, the Czechoslovak government purchased 22 Challengers from the brigade inventory, which served in the Czechoslovak Army, first with the 11th, later with the 23rd Tank Brigade, and then with the 13th Independent Tank Battalion, until they were put in reserve in 1951 and scrapped in 1959. Russell? Are any of these um, tanks left? Two vehicles actually survive. Uh, one at the Overloon War Museum in the Netherlands, and the other was awaiting restoration at the Isle of Wight Military Museum in the United Kingdom until its closure. Once restored, it'll be displayed at the Bovington Tank Museum. I think it's there now. Is it there now? Yeah, I think it's there now. Cool. So, they, th- at least there's two of these left. Exactly, but yeah. there's another. If any of our uh, uh, listeners affiliated with the Arverloon Museum, if you'd like us to come, we'll be more than oh, happy yeah. to come. Yeah. You just provide us a couple of uh, oh, man. tickets and oh, we'll fly wow. over. Man. Uh, they don't even have to be first class. Yeah, we'll, we'll and we're sit we're, in the luggage department. I yeah, yeah, we'll sit in by <laughs> we'll sit in the back by the toilets. I don't care. That's that's always a fun flight for seventeen hours. But uh, uh yeah, and, and you can put us on our couch. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll even buy pizza. Heck yeah. Well, I don't know if they have pizza. There. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if this dumb virus would go away, we'd go see some tanks, and I'm really itching to, and I know you are too, and. and you know, we right now the Europe is basically blocked all flights from the United States, and I don't blame them. We still have tons of people out there not wearing their masks, not doing what they're supposed to, but we have everything else going on in the United States, so we've got more problems. I know, but at least we could go 
you know, to some of these other tank museums that are closed, like the one we want to go up and see, Montana, the new one. We want to make another trip down to Texas. Uh, definitely, we need to get down to Tulsa soon. Yeah. I guess, Russ, that's kind of it. That'll bring us to our second point. Uh, you know, this Michael Whitman guy, the German tank ace. Start us off with that, Russ. Yeah, Michael Whitman. He was born on April 22nd, 1914, and he died on August 8th, 1944. He was a German Waffen-SS tank commander during the Second World War. He is known for his ambush of elements of the British 7th Armored Division during the Battle of villers bocage on June 13th, 1944. While in command of a Tiger I tank, Whitman destroyed up to 14 tanks and 15 personnel carriers along with two anti-tank guns, within the space of about 15 minutes. The news was picked up and disseminated by the Nazi propaganda machine and added to Whitman's stature in Germany. Whitman became a cult figure after the war thanks to his accomplishments as a panzer ace, a highly decorated tank commander, as part of the portrayal of the Waffen-SS in popular culture. Historians have mixed opinions as to his tactical performance in battle. Some praised his actions at Villers Bocage, while others found his abilities lacking and the praise for his tank kills overstated. You see, there's a lot of con- controversy about this ace. First, he he really was uh, a flag-waving member of the Nazi party. He was a Nazi. Uh, that immediately turns me off as a person. But I have to go back and do this as a historian and be impartial. I know that the German propaganda machine were inflating kills. And I'm not saying every German, I want to say this, not every German sh- soldier were party members. But but he was. And he was big time, you know, uh, flag wa- waver for those guys. As far as his hundreds of tank kills, you know, or, you know, these, were they overinflated? Yeah, you know, people say, oh, no, 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 no. Listen, I know you enjoy Whitman, and there's tons of books out there that make him a cult leader type thing. You know, there's still people that travel to his gravesite and stuff. But remember, if you're from the UK or something like that, this is a guy who was killing your people. Yeah. You know, again, I have to be impartial. Did he jump this British or a UK tank line at Villers or Vickers. No, it's Villers. He was amazing. You know, he got pretty lucky. They got him on a road that was kind of boxed in and they were all just sitting there and he started from the back and was bam, 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 killing all these guys, destroying these vehicles. And most of them, were surprised. So he had the element of surprise. And by the time the people turned around and got ready to, you know, face him, they're like, Oh, oh crap. It's a tiger. Was that beautiful stat, you know, tactics and, and genius, you know, strategy, or did he get lucky? Yeah. You know, you can debate that. Michael Whitman was born in the village of Vogelthal near Dietfurt in Bavaria's upper Palatinate on April 22, 1914, and enlisted in the German Army in 1934 after the Nazi seizure of power. 
He joined the SS in October 1936 and was assigned to the regiment, later division, Liebstandart SS Adolf Hitler on April 5th, 1937. Now the abbreviation for that is the LSSAH. A year later, he participated in the annexation of Austria, the occupation of Sudetenland, and he joined the Nazi party. Okay, that's what I'm saying. In 1937, he joins, you know, Hitler's bodyguard or SS. And we aren't going to get political here. We always say it's history, but he really is a confirmed Nazi. So, Russell, let's, he, he fought on the Eastern and Western fronts. Tell us about his Eastern Front experience. Whitman's unit was transferred to the Eastern Front in the spring of 1941 for Operation Barbarossa, the planned invasion of the Soviet Union. He was assigned to the SS Panzer Regiment 1, a tank unit, where he commanded a Stug 3 assault gun tank destroyer, as well as a Panzer 3 medium tank. By 1943, he commanded a Tiger 1 tank, and by Operation Citadel, the Battle of Kursk, he was a platoon leader. Attached to the LSSAH, Whitman's platoon of four Tigers reinforced the division's reconnaissance battalion to screen the division's left flank. His four Tigers destroyed a number of Soviet tanks. At one point, his tank survived a collision with a burning T-34. Whitman, receiving the swords to his Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross from Adolf Hitler in 1944. On January 14, 1944, Whitman was awarded the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross. The presentation was made by his divisional commander, SS Oberfuhrer Theodore Wisch, who nominated him for the... Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross with Oak Leaves. Whitman was awarded the Oak Leaves on January 30th for the destruction of 117 tanks, making him the 380th member of the German Armed Forces to receive it. He received the award from Adolf Hitler, who presented it to him at the Wolf's Lair, his headquarters in Rastenburg, on February 2nd of 1944. We have talked about burning charging T-34s. And when you saw it, it appeared to be brave Soviet tankers making a final charge. In reality, the tanker was already dead. And the forward controls and gas pedal was frozen in those positions. If you want to do some research on some of these battles, one of the things is the German soldiers and tankers were like, well, these Soviets are crazy. You know, when we hit it, it was on fire. And the driver actually stood up through the escape hatch and while it was on fire ran into our tanks and Whitman had one of these tanks run into him but what they didn't realize is that poor guy was already dead and it was in a froze position and it just was going in the direction it was headed for a lot of these recovered tanks that they found in swamps and stuff were actually war graves where it had got hit the crew died or you know bailed out Except for the driver, and it just drove yeah. into the lake and sputtered out. And, and uh, yeah. you know, pretty sad. Yeah. Pretty sad. A little bit on the Western Front side of Whitman's history. In April 1944, the LSSAH's Tiger Company was transferred to the SS Heavy Panzer Battalion 101. This battalion was assigned to the ISS Panzer Corps as a corps asset and was never permanently attached to any division or regiment. Whitman was appointed commander of the battalion's second company and held the rank of SS Obersturmfuhrer on June 7th 
following the Allied invasion of Normandy, the battalion was ordered to move from Boivos to Normandy. The move, covering roughly 165 kilometers or 103 miles, took five days to complete. Could be possibility of them breaking down. Some of the Tigers really weren't ma- made for that long, fast haul like some of the other tanks. Not knocking the Tiger. Uh, uh, we get so much hate mail on that. We've already talked about it, though. It had some mechanical issues. Yep. Due to the Anglo-American advance south from Gold and Omaha beaches, the German 352nd Infantry Division began to buckle. As the division withdrew south, it opened up a 7.5-mile-wide gap in the front line near Camont Avante. Sip Dietrich, a commander of the 1st SS Panzer Corps, ordered the heavy SS Panzer Battalion 101, his only reserve, to position itself between the Panzer Lair Division and the SS Division Hitler Youth. This position would protect the developing open left flank. Anticipating the importance the British would assign to the high ground near villers Bocage, Whitman's company was positioned near the town. Late on the 12th, it arrived in an area in the vicinity of villers Bocage, Nominally, composed of 12 tanks, his company was 50% under strength due to losses and mechanical failures. Told you so. <laughs> so he's got 12 tanks and he's at 50%. So he should have 24 or 25 tanks. And going into this fight, he knows the British are coming. Uh, I'm sorry, the UK forces are coming. And, and they're going to take Villers. And he's like, all right, I'm going to get ready. You know what? I hate to say it, but this is looking like to be a setup. Yeah. The following morning, lead elements of the British 7th Armored Division enters villers Bocage. Their objective was to exploit the gap in the front line seize villers Bocage and capture the nearby ridge, point 213, in an attempt to force a German withdrawal. So basically, do, there was a 11-kilometer opening that they could race through. Whitman's like, okay, I'm going to flank him. The British arrival surprised Whitman. He had not expected them to arrive so soon. He reported afterwards he had no time to assemble his company. Instead, I had to act quickly as I had to assume that the enemy had already spotted me and would destroy me where I stood. Having given instructions for the rest to hold their ground, he set off with one tank. At approximately 0900 hours, Whitman's Tiger emerged from cover on the main road, Route Nationale 175, and engaged the rearmost British tanks position on point 213, destroying them. Whitman then moved towards villers Bocage, engaging several transport vehicles parked alongside the road, the carriers burst into flames as their fuel tanks were ruptured by machine gun and high explosive fire. Moving into the eastern end of town, he engaged a number of light tanks, followed by several medium tanks. Alerted to Whitman's actions, light tanks in the middle of town quickly got off the road while medium tanks were brought forward. Whitman, meanwhile, had destroyed another British tank, two artillery observation posts, tanks, followed by a scout car and a half-track. He was even surprised they were there. So all these guys are running up, and again, they said, there shouldn't be anybody around. There, there's an 11-kilometer or 7-mile gap. We should be have no problem. So the guys rolling in, as you can see, they're not all packed together and covering and doing They're just moving into th- this town, and they already had the town. So they're getting radioed to the back, you know, hey, hey this, this town's ours. Come on up. 
he thinks that he's got spotted. They didn't spot him. And then he just waylays into these people. Accounts different as to what happened next. Historians record that following the destruction of the observation post tanks, Whitman dueled briefly without success with a Sherman Firefly before withdrawing. His tiger is then reported to have continued eastward to the outskirts of the town before being disabled by an anti-tank gun. However, Whitman's own account contradicts his. He states his tank was disabled by an anti-tank gun in the town center. I have my own thoughts about this. If you read some of the, the Allied reports and stuff, there was a firefly. It, it, they did have a little tussle with him. But he knew that, okay, I've got something out here in the open shooting at me, and I still have stuff I can do in town. So he backs out and starts cleaning them out. And he, he probably telling the truth. He's like, yeah, uh, you know, anti tank gun took out my tank tracks. Okay, so I, I can go along with that. In less than 15 minutes, 14 tanks, two anti tank guns, and 15 transport vehicles have been destroyed by the heavy SS Panzer Battalion 101, the majority attributed to Whitman. He played no further role in the Battle of Villers Bocage. For his actions during the battle, Whitman was promoted to SS Hopsturmfeer and awarded the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross with oak leaves and swords. So Whitman's luck was holding out. Everybody's luck runs out sometime. I wanted to go back, and everybody says, well, what about his huge kills in Kursk and stuff like that? He's in a Tiger tank with the 88, you know, an accurate gun, and his gunner is a very, very good gunner. At no point does Whitman ever say in his uh, writings and statements that he pushed his gunner out of the way and aimed. Yeah. He had a very, very good gunner that had experience. Yeah. So, yeah, he's directing targets and stuff like that, being the commander, but the boy behind the scope was really good. Exactly. And when you add flat ground, the 88 millimeter, and a very, very good gunner, and a crew that's motivated, you're going to get those t- kind of kills. Sure. Some of these tanks in Cursed, I'll even tell you, people debate this. There was the M3 Lee that was at Kursk. There was like nine of them with these T-34s and other tanks that they were using. How much skill is it to set a mile away and pop these tanks that are coming yeah, at you? exactly. You know, I'll, I'll give the gunner props, you sure, know, sure. for range and yeah. figuring out and having the experience. But is he this tactical the sole genius? sole person responsible for... Yeah, you're right. And, and, you know, all these tanks, you know, there, well, there's 15 tanks destroyed here and da-da. Remember, he had, you know, 12 other tanks that yeah. helped attack. Sure. Yeah, he got the majority... But he also yeah. got knocked out, and they bailed out, and they ran out of the town. So you're kind of going back towards the propaganda side of it. Yeah. You know, people are like, oh, you're you're mad at him because he's he was SS. No. If you study it, the Germans were using him as pro- propaganda. Yeah, yeah. You know, you just said in there that he was an asset. They didn't want him getting killed out there. Sure. So they put him out there. He's sitting there one day, boom, here comes all these, he, he, he's ready for a fight. Sure. I'm not saying Whitman was a coward. 
I'm saying he he wanted to fight. Yeah. He was a flag waver, so he went out and fought. On August 8, 1944, Anglo-Canadian forces launched Operation Totalese. Under the cover of darkness, British and Canadian tanks and soldiers seized the tactically important high ground near the town of St. Agning de Cromsnil. Here they paused, awaiting an aerial bombardment that would signal the next phase of the attack. Unaware of the reason the Allied forces had halted, Kurt Meyer of the SS Hitler Youth Division ordered elements of his command to counterattack and recapture the high ground. Whitman led a group of seven Tiger tanks from the heavy SS Panzer Battalion 101 supported by additional tanks and infantry. His group of Tigers crossed open terrain towards the high ground. They were ambushed by Allied tanks from both sides. On the right or northeast, British tanks from A Squadron, 1st Northamptonshire Yeomanry, and B Squadron, 144th Regiment Royal Armored Corps, were positioned in the woods. To the left or west, A Squadron, Sherbrooke Fusilier Regiment, was located at a chateau courtyard broadside to the attack where they had knocked out firing positions through the stone walls. The attack collapsed as the Canadian tanks destroyed two Tiger tanks, two Panzer IVs, and two self-propelled guns in Whitman's force, while British tank fire destroyed three other Tigers. During the ambush, anti-tank shells fired from either the British or Canadian tanks penetrated the upper hull of Whitman's tank, igniting the ammunition. The resulting fire engulfed the tank and blew off the turret. The destroyed tank's dead crew members were buried in an unmarked grave. In 1983, the German War Graves Commission located the burial site. Whitman and his crew were reinterred together at the La Combe German War Cemetery in France. See, and that's where people still go today. They find his grave. They put flowers and stuff on like that. Do I have a problem with that? As a person, yeah. You know, and like I said, here's the Brits or I'm sorry, the Allied forces, UK, they got um, British forces and Canadian forces and stuff like that. And there was some debate on who got the kill on Whitman. Well, after some historical reenactment and other stuff, it turns out a Canadian tank got him. Here's a perfect point. He's in the open ground now. They're dug in. They've knocked out holes in the walls and are sitting there waiting you know, it's yeah. how you look at it. Yeah. You know, it was the Canadian uh, gunner, you know, commander that killed him. You know, the most genius ace ever. You know, did he get all? No. Did he get him? Yeah, he got him. Yeah, he got him. And, and the thing I like to point out is uh, Whitman's tank at the time was Tiger 007. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, and I always said, man, if I ever got a tank, I'd get 007, you know, that's, you know, but that's what he was actually driving, 007 uh, tank at the time. Wow. We've talked about uh, the SS Hitler Youth, because I'll kill the name. It's actually like Hitler Juden or Juden, but it means Hitler Youth. Russ, tell us about this uh, 12th SS Panzer Hitler Youth. It was a German armored division of the Waffen-SS during World War II. The majority of its junior enlisted men were drawn from members of the Hitler Youth, while the senior NCOs and officers were from the other Waffen-SS divisions. The division committed several war crimes while en route to and during the early battles in Normandy. 
including the Osk and the Ardennes Abbey massacres. It first saw action on June 7, 1944, as part of the German defensive operations at Caen, where it suffered 80% losses. In December 1944, the division was committed against the U.S. Army in the Ardennes Offensive. After the operation's failure, which became known as the Battle of the Bulge, the division was sent to Hungary to participate in fighting around Budapest. Now, I wanted to bring this up. I'm cutting in. People are going to go, oh, you're, you're, you're knocking the 12th SS because they were Hitler youth. At no point will I ever... How do I say this? I got to be careful how I say this. I do not support child soldiers. Okay. Hitler grabbed these Hitler youth guys, these kids, and he was putting them in tanks. They were, uh, you know, being commanded or, you know, their commanders were guys that were hardcore party members and, and we're pushing that Nazi agenda, you know, superior races and stuff like that. Like Kurt, uh, Kurt Meyer. I got to be careful how I say this. They committed war crimes. These adult SS men would take these kids out and have them perform these as kind of a blooding or a, an initiation. They're like, oh, you know, these guys are inferior, you know, da, da, da. And, and they butchered these people. We're not going to get into the atrocities. I think if you want to debate me on this about your support for child soldiers and the Hitler youth, I think you should go back and read these atrocities that happened. And after you you listen how these kids had to be forced to butcher people, I, I don't know if you could legitimately debate me about how great they were. Yeah. The division eventually retreated into Austria and surrendered to the 7th U.S. Army on May 8, 1945. After the war, several members of the division, including its commander, Kurt Meyer, were convicted of war crimes. Commander of the regiment, Kurt Meyer, was found guilty of inciting his troops to commit murder. He was sentenced to death on December 28, 1945. His sentence was commuted to life imprisonment in 1946. He was actually released in 1954. Again, you know, Kurt Meyer was with the 12th SS, you know, the Hitler Youth, and in sight was these kids were looking to him, and he had, I mean, they're the commander. He's the father figure. They're scared to death. You know, they got in the first battle and had huge losses and their friends got massacred that they knew all their lives. So he's forcing these kids to do this as a blooding or a initiation. He gets sentenced to death in 1945. But by 1954, he's out walking around. He's already released, yeah. You know, what? what is that, less than 10 years? Yeah. So he did nine years for war crimes. I've, I, me and you have arrested I people know. on drug charges yeah, that gets longer that, that than that. Got yeah. longer sentences than that. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know we're about out of time, uh, but we will talk about Kurt Meyer soon. Uh, he was another tank ace uh, that I obviously have problems with, and uh, maybe we'll talk more about the Hitler Youth or something like yeah. that. 
All right. We want to do our shout outs to our patrons uh, through our Patreon program for our two tankers in a cat podcast. We want to continue to thank our patrons, Antonio Bernarda. Uh, he's still with us, supporting us. Uh, we've still got Slam Jamington. Thank you, Slam. Alejandro Martinez. He's still with us. I've uh, still got Born Ben, ODS Thero, Kevin Chin, and good old Rick Smith. Rick. I know. Uh, he's the luckiest guy oh, I know. Oh, gosh. But uh, we have to apologize to Antonio. He actually said, listen, you guys butcher my name. <laughs> But I imagine I'll have to put that in the Google Translator or something to see how it tells me how to how to say it, yeah, <laughs> or or just save it on a recording so we yeah. can just click it. But I know somewhere Antonio is sitting there with the rest of our listeners laughing, like you guys in your accent. Yeah, I'm like, what do you mean accent? Do you even know where Antonio's from? I he's wh- the one that's from Portugal. Oh, and yeah. he gives us all the Portugal uh, armor yeah, stuff. Yeah. He is such a great oh, guy. He is. He, he is, is such a great yeah. guy. Anyway, thank you, Antonio. We got your first name, I'm pretty sure, pretty close. So. Uh, how <laughs> We've actually been chatting and talking, having a good time. We probably have a long episode. Oh, we do. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked. Um, yeah. It'll probably be almost an hour. Close to an hour by the time I get done editing it. Well, so. then I better let these people go. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> This is Charlie. And this is Russell. As always, happy tanking and have a great week.